Anyone who has or has ever had a Jewish grandmother knows the look. It's the look of disapproval. Because you're not wearing a sweater and it's dipped below 70. Because you grabbed a cracker before dinner and now ruined your appetite. Prime Minister Golda Meir was a master of the grandmotherly look of disapproval. On the one hand, she was witty, funny, and blunt, and could demonstrate a deep well of empathy. She famously said, quote, Those who don't know how to weep with their whole heart don't know how to laugh either. End quote. But she was equally famous for her uncompromising views, her black and white attitude, and her discomfort with change. She was an old-school labor Zionist, an Ashkenazi Russian-American Jew in a rapidly changing Middle Eastern society. She was excellent at confronting Israel's enemies. But for her own citizens agitating for reform, she can have a blind spot. Take it from me. Jewish grandmothers don't tolerate a lot of dissent. Sadia Marciano was the grandson who didn't want to play by the rules anymore. He was just 21 years old in 1971, a child of immigrant Jews who had moved to Israel from Morocco when Sadia was just one years old. They lived in the Muzrara neighborhood of Jerusalem, just outside the, old, the walls of the old city. It was an impoverished and dilapidated neighborhood where the Israeli housing ministry stuck new Mizrahi immigrants after 1948. Just yards away from the Arab side of Jerusalem, the neighborhood came under constant attack from across the line, and the Israeli government hardly made any investments to improve it. This was a pattern wherever Mizrahi Jews settled, Jewish refugees from the Middle East and North Africa, whom the Ashkenazi elite tended to look down on. The Mizrahi got the short end of the stick on just about every metric, from housing to education to healthcare and services. It left many of them embittered. By the late 1960s, their children were growing up determined not to live as second-class citizens and second-class Jews in their own country. Sadia Marciano and his friends in the Muzrara neighborhood began organizing themselves into a movement for change. They needed a name, and they knew they would be going up against Golda Meir. Sadia wanted something that would scare her, a name that would keep her up at night. So Sadia and his friends called themselves the Black Panthers and they were looking to incite a social revolution. So, the Black Panthers versus Golda Meir, that's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Juwada Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. As the 1960s turned into the 1970s, Golda Meir had a lot on her plate. There were the usual things that occupy politicians, like a major election in 1969. Golda and her left-wing Labour Party won it big, maintaining the left's dominance in Israel that it had enjoyed since the country's establishment. But she also managed to craft a unity government that year, which included many right-wing opposition parties. And this political achievement was very important to her, because it signaled a broader unity in the country that she thought was essential for solidarity. And that's because of what was going on elsewhere. The war of attrition with Egypt was grinding on. Just about every day brought news of more Israeli soldiers killed in and around the Suez Canal Zone. It was greatly distressing for Golda, who insisted on being told of every casualty, even in the middle of the night, 
and she frequently met with the parents of those killed. The IDF struggled to limit Egyptian aggression, which was supported by the Soviet Union with massive quantities of weapons and training. So this focused Golda like a laser on Israel's relationship with the United States, which was now Israel's main source of weapons. The little country's defense rested on Golda's ability to charm and convince President Nixon to supply F-4 fighter jets, missiles, ammunition, and other high-tech weaponry. Which, at the end of the day, she was very successful at. It just took up all her time. Although a shaky ceasefire would end the war of attrition in the summer of 1970, there was little movement on peace efforts with the Arabs. President Nasser of Egypt had died suddenly of a heart attack, and a new leader, Anwar Sadat, stepped in. Israel was still trying to feel out his intentions. And in the midst of all this was a wave of terrorism that escalated from attacks inside Israel to international spectacles, such as the airplane hijackings by the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. We'll get more into this next episode, when we look at how the civil war that was happening in Jordan in the early 1970s propelled terrorism against Israel. So Golda was justifiably keeping her attention on the external forces that threatened Israel's security. But a lot was happening internally as well. Things that had been accumulating since the founding of the state that were finally catching up to the country. From labor rights to religious control, the 60s and the Six-Day War had opened up a new Israel. Economics were changing, values were changing, the social fabric was changing. Those who had been relegated to the periphery of Israel, both physically and socially, were no longer willing to tolerate it. On the one hand, this was all a good problem to have. In one of the greatest mass rescues in world history, Israel took in nearly a million Mizrahi Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. Fleeing persecution under the Arab states, these Jews often arrived in Israel having been stripped of their wealth and property. Although it was small, impoverished, and constantly under attack, Israel managed to take them all in, providing them with housing, education, healthcare, and equal citizenship in a state of their own people. It was an historic accomplishment any way you slice it, a stirring vindication of the purpose of the Zionist movement. But that's not to say that it was in any way easy. Although all new immigrants struggled, the Mizrahi had a particularly rough go of it. They were usually relegated to the periphery of the country, housed in Ma'abarot, slum-like housing camps and small development towns that were supposed to be temporary, but instead lasted for decades. The Ma'abarot were shuffled to the edges of the state and its cities, out of reach of critical services, investment, and job opportunities. The Mizrahi couldn't help but notice that the European refugees, the Ashkenazi, they tended to get the best housing, the most well-funded schools, the highest-paying jobs, and the benefit of the doubt from law enforcement. All things that are necessary for social and economic success, and the absence of which kept the Mizrahi in a perpetual state of poverty compared to the Ashkenazi. This was all compounded by the general disdain of the Ashkenazi for the Mizrahi, a classic European snobbery for what was perceived to be the backwardness of Middle Eastern culture. The historian Howard Sacker quotes Goldemeyer asking, quote, Shall we be able to elevate these immigrants to a suitable level of civilization? End quote. That pretty much captured the thinking. 
a kind of benign racism that couldn't see the richness of Mizrahi life from the standpoint of European cultural attitudes. And so Sacker writes that while the gulf between the two communities had narrowed, the fact that it, quote, had not appreciably been eliminated remained a source of continuing bitterness, end quote. The Mizrahi were no longer newcomers to Israel. In fact, they were now 50% of Israel's Jewish population. Quote, like the Arabs, they measured what they had by the achievements of others, in this case, the Ashkenazim. Failing to attain the same levels, they were persuaded that social discrimination was as responsible for their plight in the 1960s as it was in the 1950s, end quote. But in the chaos of early statehood, everyone was just trying to survive. The historian Daniel Gordis writes, quote, Much of the immigrant generation remained docile in the face of government decisions, but for their children, a sense of injustice became a central pillar of their identity, end quote. And now, in the wake of the Six-Day War, these children, like Sadia Marciano and his friends, they were looking to launch a revolution. By 1971, Sadia Marciano and his friends were particularly angry about the housing situation in their neighborhood of Musrara in Jerusalem. Before the Six-Day War, Musrara had been an unenviable slum. Pushed against the hostile Arab frontier a few streets away, it was dangerous and dirty and there were few prospects for improvement or advancement, and little attention from the politicians anyway. But after the war, when Jerusalem was united under Israeli control, Musrara became the hot new place in town. Jerusalem's leaders were excited to develop it, and hip new buildings were planned for an influx of new residents. But for those nice new apartments, the city looked to new immigrants from the Soviet Union, Ashkenazi Jews, not the Mizrahi, who were already there. Ashkenazi gentrification threatened to push out the Mizrahi. For Sadia Marciano and his friends, it was the clearest possible demonstration of the social discrimination they faced, the ignorance of the nation's political leaders, and the frustration that the Ashkenazi were again put first, even before the Mizrahi families who had been in Israel for over a generation now. From housing flowed the better schools for Ashkenazi, better jobs and reserved spots in the nation's elite. One of the popular Mizrahi slogans reflected the disparity in ethnic representation. We're, we're 1% in the Knesset, 96% in the jails. And so, Sadia Marciano and nine other friends, all between the ages of 18 to 21, organized themselves into a movement for change. They called themselves Hapantorim Hashchorim, the Black Panthers, named after the militant American civil rights group. They wanted a name that had global recognition, stood for ethnic solidarity, and would garner them the attention of the media and the Ashkenazi politicians, especially Golda Meir, who, being part American herself, new American politics. They broadly saw themselves experiencing the same kinds of discrimination as black Americans and used the Black Panther name to force Israelis to pay attention, confront the discrimination, and do something about it. They began referring to their Musrara neighborhood as Harlem. They quickly got their wish for attention from the police. The Black Panthers were arrested as they hung up leaflets around Musrara. It seemed to prove their point. You never saw Ashkenazi kids getting arrested for anything like this. 
The police pointed out that the Black Panthers weren't just innocent kids, but older teens with criminal records, and accused the Panthers of deliberate provocations designed to stir up civil unrest. The police refused to grant the Panthers a permit to demonstrate in Jerusalem, so the Black Panthers went ahead with it anyway. On March 2, 1971, several hundred people showed up at the illegal protest in front of Jerusalem City Hall, where the Panthers spoke about the social discrimination and entrenched poverty and beseeched Israelis to end their divisions. People took notice. So did Golda Meir. For Golda Meir, who was raised on the collectivist values of the early Zionist pioneers, the rapid shifts in things like urbanization, Mizrahi Jewish identity, economic prosperity, and its individualism, all these things graded her sensibilities. These things seemed to stand opposed to what her labor Zionism stood for. Collectivism, national unity, socialism, hard work, Jewish solidarity. She was trying to build a country that would free Jews from the discrimination they faced in the rest of the world, a Jewish state that would take care of its own. In her view, the Black Panthers were suggesting that she wasn't doing it right. It's not that she didn't recognize what was going on or care. In her memoirs, she wrote about pushing for the government to do something about what she called, quote, the widening gap between the people who had everything they needed, if not everything they wanted, and those tens of thousands who were still ill-housed, ill-clothed, undereducated, and sometimes even ill-fed, end quote. She recognized that most of this group belonged to the Second Israel, Jews who had come in the late 1940s and early 1950s from the Middle East and North Africa. But she bristled at the idea of these young Panthers demanding things. She told the country, she said, that, quote, the government cannot do everything all at once. It can't wave a magic wand and meet everyone's demands simultaneously, eradicate poverty without imposing taxes, win wars, go on absorbing immigration, develop the economy, and still give everyone his due. No government can do all this at one and the same time, end quote. When in April, the Black Panthers declared a hunger strike at the Western Wall, Golda agreed to meet with them. Sadia Marciano and his friends filed into the Prime Minister's office to lay out their concerns. The Israeli State Archives kept a record of the meeting. One of the Black Panther leaders, Reuven Abergel, explained that the Panthers weren't looking for handouts. They wanted to work, but there were too many obstacles for people like them, and not enough opportunities. If they were hoping for a sympathetic ear from Grandma Golda, they didn't get it. Instead, they got a scolding and a dismissal to just go find jobs and stop complaining already. She just didn't get their anger at the system, didn't appreciate their disappointment and frustration. But she wasn't alone. The entire Ashkenazi Labor Party left-wing establishment seemed to miss the point. Leah Bendor, a columnist for the Jerusalem Post, wrote a skeptical analysis of the Black Panthers in which she blamed their cultural shortcomings, not discrimination for their misfortunes. After all, she pointed out, their own grandfathers had suffered discrimination in the Arab countries, but still, quote, learned how to live in that world, end quote. She argued that the Jews of Europe, who had arrived in Israel having escaped persecution, 
fought for their family's security, and made the effort to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. In contrast for the Mizrahi, she wrote, quote, Fathers take precedence over sons. They do not slave and scrape to send them to college, end quote. She likened the Panthers and their friends to misfits, claiming that they weren't interested in real work with a proper job, had been rejected for the army, had drifted into delinquency and hashish. This when plenty of boys from their communities had made good and achieved status. Quote, Today the Panthers are not a political movement, but a group that has banded together, in the hope of getting unspecified satisfaction for the fact that they are not equipped to get anywhere, even into the army. End quote. All this smug superiority from the Ashkenazi establishment made the Black Panthers even more determined. If they couldn't get the nation's leaders to pay attention to their daytime concerns, they would take back the night. A month after their contentious meeting with Golda, the Black Panthers staged a massive protest against discrimination, set along Jaffa Street in the heart of Jerusalem. Around 7,000 people turned out on May 18, 1971, for the Night of the Panthers. For hours, the demonstrators clashed with the police and things turned violent. Hundreds were arrested, and there were reports of protesters being beaten by the police. Some of the Panthers, or their supporters, threw Molotov cocktails. It was chaos. Many of the Black Panthers were dismayed. Unlike the American Black Panthers, they weren't trying to be a militant movement. They weren't interested in violence. They didn't see themselves apart from Israeli society. They wanted to be equal members in it. The Prime Minister was livid. The scholar Eleanor Burkett quotes Golda's famous comments. Quote, These are not nice boys. How can a Jew throw a Molotov cocktail at another Jew or at a Jewish building? Are these nice people? Perhaps they were good once, and I hope they will be good in the future, but they certainly are not good now. End quote. These are not nice boys is a stinging rebuke from a grandmother, but from a politician, it's not great for wooing people over. But for Golda, it went deeper than that. To her, the Black Panthers represented a willful act of schism in Israeli society at a time of great danger. Quote, What has happened to our understanding, to our self-discipline? We are behaving as if there was no danger ahead of us, as if we had already achieved the peace we longed for. End quote. She couldn't understand why these boys didn't appreciate that the defense budget was the priority, and there just wasn't enough left to reshape Israeli society the way that they wanted it. Still, there's what she said and what she did. She persuaded the Knesset to allocate greater funding for welfare, education, and housing, specifically targeted at the Mizrahi, which was more than any other previous Knesset had done. Even the Jerusalem Post columnist, Leah Bendor, could agree that low-income public housing for rent was the single most important thing that could be done to narrow the gap. She wrote, quote, the fact that a man cannot get a place to live without a down payment that is astronomical for the unskilled laborer is destructive of his sense of independence and self-confidence, end quote. Golda Meir agreed. She wrote, quote, Of course, we could go on congratulating ourselves on the fact that between 1949 and 1970, we had built more than 400,000 units of public housing, and there wasn't a single place in the country, however isolated, that didn't have a school, a kindergarten, and in most places also a nursery school. 
But no amount of justified pride in what we had managed to achieve could possibly eliminate the other less pleasant facts, end quote. Yet she also acknowledged that while her administration made progress in the following years, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for the Black Panthers either, who continued their campaigning of disruption and agitation designed to highlight discrimination and poverty. In March of 1972, the Panthers staged Operation Milk. They stole crates of milk from Jerusalem's rich Ashkenazi Rahavia neighborhood and distributed them to the city's poor Mizrahi areas. They left behind notes that read, quote, We thank you that you decided today to give milk to hungry children instead of the dogs and cats in your home. We came this morning to implement our plan in order to remind all citizens, the government, and especially you, that we care, end quote. Once again, Golda lashed out, indignant at the suggestion that Israel had any kind of milk shortage or couldn't provide enough food. The Panthers didn't disagree, and apparently, according to some accounts, ended up paying for the milk. Eleanor Burkett writes that while the Black Panthers listened to Golda's explanations, quote, they never once heard her admit to the racism that everyone knew existed or watched her treat their plight as an emergency. In fact, it never was to Golda. Not that she was indifferent to poverty, nor was she blind to Mizrahim and their problems. But the charge of discrimination cut too deep in a woman whose vision was clouded by her own progressive self-image and by her utopian fantasy of a Jewish homeland in which all the scars and ruptures left by 2,000 years of exile would vanish in a paroxysm of brotherhood. Ultimately, the Mizrahim were not part of Golda's Israel, which, like her old neighborhood in Milwaukee, was a modernized shtetl of Yiddish speakers and secular Jews. End quote. So it was only natural that Saudi Marciano and his friends tried to turn their visibility and popularity into political success. And here they struggled throughout the 1970s due to infighting and internal conflicts over philosophical and policy agendas. They did form a Black Panther political party for the 1973 election, but didn't succeed in getting enough votes to make it into the Knesset. From there, various members drifted into other parties and movements which were eager to absorb the Mizrahi cause. In the late 1970s, Sadia Marciano aligned himself with a left-wing party and got a Knesset seat, but he only served one year. Many of the original group continued their social activism, expanding beyond the Mizrahi to embrace civil rights, other struggling Jewish immigrants, Arab Israelis, and the Palestinians, taking strong stands against the occupation. Although they didn't succeed electorally, they had a huge impact on Mizrahi identity that in turn affected a tsunami in Israeli politics. For if the left didn't want the Mizrahi, the right was happy to take them in. Over the next several years, the Mizrahi went in droves over to the opposition. The right-wing leader Menachem Begin would finally unseat the Labour Party in the 1977 elections, thanks in no small part to the Mizrahi vote. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Much more to discuss on this topic. And in the meantime, we, like Golda, need to turn our attention back to the external crises that continue to plague Israel. A civil war in Jordan between King Hussein and Palestinian terrorists spawned an ultra-violent faction determined to make both Jordan and Israel suffer. That's next episode. As always, I'm at jewidontknow.com, and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Heathrow out. 
See you later. Bye.